Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. It's a Dear Andy edition. Uh, your first Dear Andy question, if you listen to, to Monday's show, maybe what the heck happened with jury duty? I went to jury duty. I was not selected to serve on the jury despite you know, a full day of sitting there listening to other prospective jurors being asked questions about how they would handle certain situations. Uh, they never even bothered to ask me how I'd handle any situations, but I would say that probably everyone is better off that an idiot like me is not helping decide anybody's fate. I think that's that's probably the best outcome for everybody. But I figured I'd turn the show over to you today. Uh, you have been asking some great questions. There were some ones that I could not get to in the mailbag column on The Athletic last week, and I, I do want to get to them. And there's a couple that that I'm better qualified to answer after this past weekend because I was up in Knoxville doing some stories. Uh, I've got some some stories on the current Tennessee football team that are coming out in, in a little bit. I've also got a story that came out Monday on uh, Nico Iamaleava. I've got it. Nico Iamaleava, the, the quarterback who is committed to Tennessee. He's a five-star quarterback in the class of 2023. Everybody seems to think he is the, the $8 million mystery man recruit. And when I asked his dad about it, he said, uh, no comment. And you try asking a, a six, eight, 300 plus pound dad if his kid is the $8 million man. Uh, it's, it's awkward. It's awkward. But he was cool about it. He, he understands that. I think they're getting that question a lot. But that whole situation has generated a lot of good questions. And I, I think that this is also new to everybody. And we're all just trying to process how this works. And I think we're going to be getting some more news here about other NIL deals involving different collectives that are adjacent to different schools. And I say, I know I'm using all the BS words like adjacent to. We all know how this is going. That These, these collectives are attached to the schools, whether directly or indirectly, uh, whether someone is actually talking to them from the school or sending smoke signals saying, hey, we want this guy. We, we know what's happening here. There's going to be some more of this. It's not just going to be Tennessee, not just going to be Texas A&M. You will see this happening at more places. Uh, you just saw Alabama announce something. Well, not, not Alabama, the school, but a collective that is based very near the University of Alabama that will be adjacent to the University of Alabama. Uh, you've got Nebraska's announced how they're doing last week. So it, it's kind of important now for these people to declare themselves. Uh, we were talking to Antonio Morales, our USC beat writer on the, on the show on Monday. He said he expects that USC, someone affiliated with USC, or you know, not directly affiliated, of course, but that someone will have a, a USC-adjacent one up and running by the end of this month. And I, you just it's, it's what you got to do to play the game. The system changed overnight everybody's kind of scrambling right now. You think about it, you had what was probably 
a super over-regulated system. And, and if you ask, you know, players or, or the plaintiff's attorneys who took the NCAA to federal court, maybe illegally regulated. Well, now it's gone the, the complete opposite direction, where it's almost virtually unregulated. And that's probably not great either. But the problem now is the schools probably could make some rules to get their arms around this, but they are so scared of getting dragged into court after the Supreme Court decision last year in the Alston case that I'm not sure they're going to do it. I think I think they were relying on Congress to do it. I think it's dawning on them. Congress isn't going to do it for them. So this may be what, what you're dealing with for a little while, for a few years, until everybody gets a little more comfortable with the idea of maybe the players are employees and maybe you do collectively bargain with them because guess what? Those deals would be a lot more school-friendly than the deals that are that are going out now. So let's get to your questions. John asked the first one, and it's it's on this topic. Assuming Nico Iyama, I had it. I, I, I don't know why I keep messing up his name. Nico Iyama Iyama. No, Nico Iyama Iyama. Thank you. Assuming Nico Iyama Iyama is in fact the recipient of an $8 million NIL package from, ten- not from Tennessee, John, from the collective that services Tennessee. I think that may, maybe that's the way we need to, to, to frame it. Isn't it realistic to assume that he is still underpaid once he steps on campus in 2023? Can't say I've had anybody ask this way before. Let's say he is the real deal, has an above average to great career, no title, but a couple of top 10 finishes and becomes a first round draft pick. How much additional revenue does Tennessee generate from having him on campus? $40 million through higher ticket prices, seat licenses, and merch sales? $50 million? Considering the ma- vast majority of NIL money isn't actually coming from the schools themselves, $8 million in booster money spread out over three to four years is a steal for UT, right? Taking into account what the schools stand to earn in additional revenue and the NIL opportunities themselves, what do you think fair market value is for a five-star QB? That is a great question. We'll pair it with Andy's question. It was reported the five-star QB signed an $8 million deal with a collective. Presumably, Nicholas, using the full name and spelling it correctly, by the way. Ayama Liaba. I got it! Who committed to Tennessee right after? My question is, since he has reportedly already signed the deal, and the Tennessee collective is on the hook for the money, and of course this isn't pay for play, wink, 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 wink. Why doesn't he just now go where he really wants to go if it is not Tennessee and potentially hurt a rival's salary pool for the next few years? I will start with Andy's question and then we can move on to John's question. So Andy's question is basically if let's say he's the guy and he's made this deal. Why not just because remember, he hasn't signed yet. He won't sign until December. Why not just sign with another school if that like if his heart really wants to play for another school? Why not just take this money and they're on the hook for it and sign with another school? Well, here's why. The way the deal is structured is that they have bought his NIL rights lock, stock, and barrel. Whoever this player is, and we're assuming it's Nico, the collective owns that player's NIL rights. And to recoup what they are paying for those NIL rights, the collective will make deals that will be appearances, could be autograph signing sessions, could be uh, for merchandise. There are all kinds of different ways to, to skin this particular cat. But what the collective can do if they want to make it difficult for the player to earn the money back, 
is if the player has decided he's, they're going to go somewhere else is say, well, we've we schedule all these appearances. They're in Knoxville. So if you sign with Oregon or UCLA or, or Arizona, State, whoever, you're not going to be in Knoxville. If you're not in Knoxville, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. You're in breach of the contract. Therefore, they owe you nothing from that point forward. So they're not really on the hook. If he's in Knoxville, where, where they could potentially be on the hook is if he's not good but stays at Tennessee or whoever this is, is not good, but stays at the school that they initially signed with because that's where the collective has to eat that money because as long as the person keeps showing up to work, it's, it's, this is not Milton in office space where they just fix the glitch. It doesn't work that way. If that person keeps showing up and fulfilling the terms of the contract, they got to keep paying. But the thought is it's a five-star quarterback If they're not playing at that school, they're going to want to go somewhere where they can play, so they'll go to another town. They won't be able to physically meet the demands of the contract, and the contract will be null and void, and then they'll probably make a deal with the collective at the new school. And that's ideally how, how, not ideally, but that's, that's how that would work. So to John's question about would, would he be underpaid? It depends on how successful we're talking about. What what John said is no title. So I'm assuming that to be no national title, but a couple of top 10 finishes and becomes a first-round draft pick. So let's let's say no SEC title, no national title, but maybe an appearance in Atlanta, a couple top 10 finishes, he's a first-round draft pick. That would be well worth $8 million for the University of Tennessee. Well worth it. Now, uh, John mentioned seat licenses and, and revenue from, from football tickets and that sort of thing. That's actually kind of another story entirely. Tennessee is, is really trying to modernize its tennis, its ticket sales and, and booster contributions for football tickets. They are, they were a little bit in the dark ages on that a little, little bit of a good old boy network going in there that they're trying to get fixed. Uh, Danny White, the new AD has been in place for a little over a year. He's trying to, to make it a little more like, what he did at UCF where they, they're kind of ma- they can maximize the revenue. And if you maximize the revenue at Tennessee, especially if, if the Vols happen to be getting good at the same time, then you, that's a lot of revenue. That's a, that's a whole lot of revenue. So yeah, it, it, it would be very interesting to see what his value would be at that point. If he plays that well, if he's that good, I would think he's either break even or, Everybody's making money. And, and here's the thing. The way this thing is designed, and again, I, I don't know if it's him, but whoever it is, the way it's designed is that if the player is really, really good, the player can recoup all that money. And, you know, they, they so let's say it pays up to $8 million over four years. If the player makes $8 million for the collective, the deal then converts. What because what this deal is, it this deal is not new. This is a this is basically a marketing guarantee, like an agent would have given a player coming out of college going into the NFL draft in the past. Uh though it's it's sort of a here's some money and it's sort of against the draw. Like as soon as you start making marketing revenue, we apply what you make to that until you've repaid us, and then you start pulling 90% of that. So that's what 
would happen here. If that player makes $8 million for the collective, it converts to like a 90-10 deal where the player would get 90 and the, the collective would get 10%. That's like a standard agency deal when you're dealing with endorsements. So if he's very successful, then yes, especially given the way that with Nico, you know, specifically, as faithful as the Tennessee fan base is, as passionate, as crazy about everything as the Tennessee fan base is, if he has led them to a higher plane of existence on the football field, then absolutely they will pay for whatever. Whatever has his name on it, they'll buy it. And there's a good chance, if he's that good, that the collective would recoup that money and that everybody got rich. Because remember, once you pass that threshold, the collective is making 10% on everything too. And all of a sudden, it's a great deal for everybody. Where it's a bad deal for the collective is that the player is bad and they decide that they're going to stay where they were and not going to go try to find a place to play and they are going to just keep taking the money. That's where it becomes bad for the collective. Where it would become bad for the player is if the deal was it's capped at this dollar amount and once you make that back, we still get 100% of the rest. That would be bad for the player this one works pretty well for everybody if the player's really good. Now, here's the other thing about Nico, and this is this is something, just spending some time around him this weekend, uh, I was at a seven-on-seven tournament with him. He was at Tennessee's facility during a scrimmage, uh, and watching him interact with his teammates, watching him interact with his family, and, and just the general public. This is a person, and, and, and if you have followed him at all on social media, if you've followed this story at all, you look at him and you go, huh, you would think, even if you didn't know anything about it, you didn't know he was a good football player, a big football recruit, he's also a really good volleyball player, if you didn't know anything about him, you'd go, oh, that guy's famous for something. He's famous. Because he's just one of those people that people tend to gravitate toward who has a look, like they're not even trying. It's just they have this look and everybody wants to copy them. And that's that's the deal, like the, the pajama pants. And if you haven't read the story I wrote in The Athletic on Monday, I explained the whole pajama pants thing. So uh, go give that a read. But basically, that's his signature look now. And it happened basically by accident. He put a pair of pajama pants on while he was playing in a seven-on-seven tournament because the pants he was supposed to be wearing were covered with mud from the day before. And he played in them, had a great game, and all of a sudden, he wanted to wear them again. And then his teammates started wearing them and an opponent started wearing them and, and it just became a thing. Well, now he's got his own line of pajama pants. He, I think he debuted them on Sunday at the, at the seven on seven tournament. They look pretty sweet to be perfectly honest. If he's good, you might have half the people in Neyland stadium wearing those things. And, and every kid in East Tennessee, well, every kid in the state of Tennessee, practically wearing those things to bed. And then all of a sudden you got yourself a, a cash cow on your hand. It, it, if you're the collective and what, what's what I think is funny about that is if the pajama pants look good enough, he could luck into like a lifestyle brand and doesn't even have to be good at football and everybody makes their money back. But realistically speaking, he's probably got to be really good at football or the collective doesn't make its money back. That that's the risk that they take. And you know, it it's, there's, 
everybody thinks you can kind of game this system. I, I had a question that was below that story on Monday in the comments, and it said, well, wouldn't couldn't a collective representing another SEC school or several other SEC schools just pay him a bunch of money to, to lose the games for Tennessee? And I'm like, no, because there are already rules in place that forbid taking money for throwing games. Like, those rules already exist. Like, I realize it's a mostly unregulated thing right now, but that still probably falls into the under the gambling rules where you you can't take money to throw a game. So I don't think that's an issue. I I, I realize everybody thinks they have this you know magic bullet that'll game them help them game the system, and maybe somebody will. But I think for the most part, when these guys do these deals with these collectives for big money. They're going to sign with that school. That, that's going to happen. Now, where it will get really interesting is when the coaches are not in the best place vis-a-vis the boosters and, and, and the fan base. When, when the coaches are a little on the hot seat, then it becomes a question of, does the coach want this player? Does the collective want this player? Do they both want this player? Because when everything's harmonious the collective is only going to go after the players the coach wants. But if the fan base is out on the coach, the collective might say, you know what? We don't care who you want. We're going after this guy. We're going to sign him up. And if you don't sign him, well, that's on you. That's going to be your fault. And if you don't play him, that's on you. That's going to be your fault. Like I think Josh Heupel at Tennessee right now is in a position where he had enough success his first year and making a, a QB switch because Joe Milton was the starter it became clear that Hinden Hooker was the better player for that offense, so he made the switch. I think Josh Heupel is in a position where it, it doesn't really matter who's got a deal. He's going to play the best player. But it will be interesting because there will be coaches in other positions who may not have that sort of security and, and may not be able to just say, you know what, I don't really care what the collective's doing. I'm, I'm going to do this. So... I, I think that's it's a good question because we're going to see some weird stuff. We'll be right back after this message from one of our lovely sponsors. As far as what is fair market value for a five-star quarterback, I don't I don't know that it's been set yet. I you know, I I think if we're being realistic about all this, obviously the dollar figures have to do with how much money the person's worth as a football player. Let's let that's yes, there's potential endorsement opportunity. Like I just went over how Nico could potentially make millions as an endorser. But the fact of the matter is most of these deals are going toward these players because of their potential value as football players, which is fine. That's that's the way this is America. That's how it should be. But I just I think it will get messy. And I think the market's going to fluctuate a lot before it finds this level. Because right now, nobody really knows what everybody else is doing. That information is actually pretty scarce and pretty valuable. If you can get realistic information about... And, and look, I know you guys want to know it. We want to get it for you and, and give you the most accurate information we can. You know who wants it even more is the people making these deals. They want to know what the other guy got because they're trying to establish a market. It's like, I, I, I always tell people, my boss is at The Athletic know what the market is for what I do. They have to. It's part of their job. It keeps them from overpaying or from underpaying and losing somebody. So 
that's what you're, you're going to see is this information will find its way to all those people. But right now, it's there's a bit of an information vacuum. And so you may see some pretty wild deals before everybody gets a sense of what the market is. I think that's probably going to take another year or so. So let's let's move on to an on-field question. I know everybody everybody loves the the NIL stuff until they don't and they get tired of it. So let's let's go to an on-field question. This is from Matthew. Oregon has a relatively easy schedule this coming year with the main challenges being a game in Atlanta against UGA and a home game against Utah. The rest of the schedule should be all wins by my measure. Assuming that they lose that Georgia game and win out the rest of the season, including the Pac-12 championship, will the Ducks have a good enough resume for a playoff spot? Well, first of all, I'm not sure Matthew's right about how easy this schedule is. I, I don't I, I don't think it's the hardest schedule in the world, but I don't necessarily think it's a cakewalk for Oregon. Uh, the, there's a couple games I'm looking at in September outside of the Georgia game that everybody should be worried about, that, that if they win these games, it's, it's a good thing. So you got that Georgia game. Huge feather in the cap if, if Oregon wins that game. But yes, you can lose that game, win everything else, and you can make the playoff. I, that that feels pretty pretty certain, especially the fact that it's the first game. They'd be on a massive winning streak. They, they, they would have won the league. Yes. But here's the thing. They play Eastern Washington after that. Eastern Washington, good FCS program. But then September 17th, BYU comes to, to Austin Stadium. Okay, BYU is going to be good. BYU is always going to be good up front. There'd be a great challenge for, for Oregon at the line of scrimmage. And that is not a game that you can pencil in as a win. Just isn't. Neither is the one the following week in Pullman. Like going to Pullman is not easy ever. And Washington State, the the way that team bounced back from the Nick Rolovich situation in 2021, really impressive. So I, I'm very excited to see what they are. And then after that, they've got Stanford, which beat them last year. You know, and they're really excited about Tanner McKee. Uh, should Oregon be better than Stanford? Yes, but they were better than Stanford last year and didn't win the game. So that this is not the easiest thing in the world. And, and then they close with Washington, Utah, Oregon State. Washington, we'll see what they look like under Kalen DeBoer. You know, the, the, the Jimmy Lake experiment failed miserably. Uh, that did not go well at all. DeBoer, does he bring in a more competent management style? Maybe. I'm not sure their personnel, though, is is good enough to hang with Oregon's right now. That that's the issue. Is is I thought Lake would would take what Chris Peterson was doing, and then add maybe a little bit higher caliber of recruit, and they'd be rolling. But it turns out, you know, he just wasn't quite suited for the job. They fire him, and now you're starting over. From a personnel standpoint, I'm not sure that Washington is is there in terms of being able to compete for the Pac-12 North. But that's a rivalry game, but it's in Eugene, so I'm, I'm fine with that. Utah, listen, after watching both Utah-Oregon games last year, I'm going to need to see Oregon do it against Utah. I'm not, I'm not writing that sucker off under any stretch of the imagination because uh, Utah just pummeled Oregon up front in both of those games, and Utah still has a, a competent quarterback in Cam Rising. Kyle Whittingham hasn't forgotten how to coach. Like, it... it this is this is not an easy schedule. And oh, by the way, Oregon goes to Oregon State. That, that's in Corvallis. I, Jonathan Smith has done a really good job at Oregon State. And I know the Oregon fans, uh, they figured that out in, in the 2020 season when, when Oregon State jumped up and shocked them. But this isn't an easy schedule. 
So, yes, to answer your question, lose to Georgia and then and then go twelve and zero the rest of the way. Yeah, you're you're making the playoff, but but because it's 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 kind of challenging. So, and I realize that the Pac-12 is is not looked at as the deepest of leagues, but you know, look when you got to go to Pullman, when you got to play Utah, it's not easy. And then the BYU game is a tough non-conference game. So, I, I think. If Oregon can get to that point, Oregon would have earned it. Now, the, the question is, can they? Dan Lanning is a, is a really interesting hire. They're recruiting really well. Uh, Bo Nix has transferred there from Auburn. We'll see if, if, if he winds up being the guy. But Kenny Dillingham is there, who, who coached Bo Nix at Auburn. And I, I, think, I think they made a good choice. I think uh, Rob Mullins picked very well with Dan Lanning because – if you look at their recruiting, and obviously they've hired Adrian Clem, they've hired Tosh Lapoy as assistants. This is this is a an elite Pac-12 recruiting staff, but also an elite national recruiting staff. So, I think Oregon's still going to be probably the best roster in the Pac-12 this year. And I realize you know USC's got Caleb Williams now, but Lincoln Riley's got work to do on the line of scrimmage. Mario Cristobal laid a really good foundation on the line of scrimmage for Dan Lanning. So, uh, and I think Kenny Dillingham, who has been at Florida State the last couple of years, probably looks around that offense and goes, you know what? I got more to work with here. So, you know, it, it, it's a question of, of whether that quarterback is Bo Nix or Ty Thompson. We'll see. But Oregon has the talent. Oregon has the talent to hang with Georgia. You know, we don't know what Georgia's defense is going to look like after losing all those guys, they're still going to be really talented on defense, but will they be as deep? Will they be as good at, at what they do? Would Dan Lanning not there anymore? Now, will Muschamp and, and Glenn Schumann know the personnel and have, have there's plenty of experience there in calling defenses and calling defenses in the SEC? But I think that's a fun matchup at the beginning of the year. So I'm not I'm not writing that off as an Oregon loss yet. I, I think Oregon might be able to come in and win that game. Sort of like we we just wrote off Oregon going to Ohio State last year, and Oregon looked great against Ohio State. So I, I think that's going to be a fun one to watch. You know, the, the Pac-12 still in, in the playoff drought. It would be nice for that league if somebody could stay relevant in the playoff discussion into November. It would be better if they could get one in. I think Oregon is is one of their better shots, but Utah's one of, one of their better shots too. And that's a game that will be played in November, could be played again in early December. And then obviously you got USC sitting out there year one of Lincoln Riley. Maybe they're the ones sitting there on the other side of the Pac-12 championship game. But Oregon, still some work to do to get there. Also, Georgia, not the only tough non-conference game because they got BYU coming in. We'll be right back after these words. We go to Peter, who asked something I had not thought of, and Ari and I may have to talk about this later. Maybe we have to readjust our, our expectations. You've mentioned Kentucky as the best job in the SEC a couple times. Once Texas and Oklahoma join, the schedule structure will change. Having Mississippi State as a crossover opponent has been advantageous when compared to someone like Tennessee, who plays Alabama every year. Does the likelihood of a more difficult SEC schedule year in and year out alter your opinion? That's a great question, because... I think right now what what seems to be the leader in the clubhouse for the new SEC scheduling format is you go to nine conference games, you have three fixed opponents for every team. So instead of you play your divisional schedule 
and Georgia plays Auburn and Tennessee always plays Alabama and Florida always plays LSU and Kentucky always plays Mississippi State, it wouldn't be like that. Kentucky would be playing, I would guess they would be playing Tennessee, would be one team that they'd play every year. I'm not sure who else they get put with because they don't have as fierce a rivalry with, with other ones. I, Kentucky, South Carolina would be one I'd like to see just because they – the team that's not supposed to win seems to frequently win in that series. So they, they play some really fun games, uh, but I don't know. You, you might have to ratchet up the difficulty a little bit. You might have to give them one of the superpowers as well. And so I I, I think that's a good question because not only that, if you, you, you're probably going to have one superpower in your three, and then you are going to see the others more often. Like you're going to see LSU more often if, if LSU is not an annual opponent. You're going to see uh, Alabama more often. You're going to see Oklahoma more often because they're going to be in the league too. So does that make it a harder job for Mark Stoops? I, I think as long as Kentucky fans' expectations stay sane, which I think they have been. I think they've been very sane. And listen, I I, I have seen the Kentucky fans calling for for John Calipari to get fired. So I, I get that they they just put their crazy in a different basket usually. And and but I think that helps Mark Stoops because he's not getting a lot of that that craziness that other coaches get. I mean, look, at South Carolina, Steve Spurrier won 11 games three years in a row. Uh the year before that streak started, they won the the SEC East. And suddenly Everybody in South Carolina started thinking that it's your birthright to to win double-digit games and beat Clemson. It's not. And, and they learned the hard way once Clemson got rolling that that's not how things work. And I think their expectations are now coming back down to earth. But if Kentucky keeps playing the way they have been, there's a chance that, that expectations go up a little too high. If they remain sane, though, I think even if the schedule gets more difficult, then everyone will still understand what Kentucky should be. Like if Kentucky's winning nine games or, or 10 games every third year, that's really, really good at Kentucky. And, you know, we've seen them do it two of the last three years. Now the one in the middle was, was not good. And, you know, if you're at Georgia or Florida or LSU or Alabama or Auburn, you can't have that one in the middle. But at Kentucky, you still can't. And so I think with a, with a program like that, you, you got to give it some grace, especially if the schedule gets harder. So as long as they're still willing to keep giving raises every time Mark Stoops gets offered another job, I'm still going to go with that. Ari and I, I realize we, did, we both had George as our number one job in the SEC, but we, with that, those criteria, you got to be able to win the national title. That's got to be part of it. But in terms of happiness and just being able to keep your very high-paying job and possibly make it more high-paying, I think Kentucky's still the, the, the tops of that one because they have realistic expectations. They have plenty of money. And as long as Mark Stoops keeps doing what he's doing, he should be able to keep that job indefinitely, even if the schedule gets a little bit harder. I don't think it gets a ton harder. It's still, look, you, you've got George every year. If Florida gets right, you got you got to deal with them every year in in the system that they have now. You might miss them a couple times in in a new system. Although I, you know they they probably will have somebody like that as one of their annual games. 
But I think you just get more fun home games. I mean, let's be honest. You're, the, the, the way the schedule would work is every team goes through the league twice every four years. So you're getting everybody in your stadium once every four years. So you're getting Alabama, you're getting Texas, you're getting Oklahoma, you're getting LSU. That's fun. It, none of this twice in 11 years stuff. It's, it, it's, it's going to be a lot better than that. So I think as long as you, you guys stay sane. So Kentucky fans, you know, keep the crazy on the basketball side and, and keep it away from the football side and just enjoy this beautiful overachieving that you keep doing on the football side. It's fun. You've got a fun quarterback in Will Levis. Uh, you've always got some, some good linemen that, that have developed through your program. Enjoy it. Don't start acting like these other SEC fan bases where it's national championship or bust every season because that's just a, that's a sure way to misery. You, you won't like that. So listen, you got you got a lot of things going for you. You got historically good basketball program, not where you want it right now. I bet it gets back there. They make bourbon in your state and you have a football team that overachieves. Enjoy it because you're still going to have a football team that overachieves. It's just going to be overachieving with home games against Alabama, Oklahoma, LSU, Texas more frequently. That and bourbon, you really can't go wrong. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you tomorrow.